This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It is, this week and every week, the show that brings you the unexplainable, the unbelievable, the macabre and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Uh, this week, listener, oh dear listener, the answers you'll find. Uh, the answer is, uh, what clips did we, <laughs> the answer to the question, what clips did we think uh, were the best from our last hundred episodes? That was a very roundabout way of going, but uh, yeah, we, we picked some clips. This is a classic clip show um, of some of our favorite moments. Now, we didn't pick anything where we're like, telling a sad story and we get a lot of good details and this is more... Fun stuff. This is more silly. This is more silly stuff, usually. Yeah, exactly. You've got some great Count von Cosell material in here. That's Always really the close. highest requested episode for some reason. You've got uh, a dip into Carrie's past from our Gettysburg Ghosts episode. Uh, you've got some good, um, fun Zach Bagans content. So, uh, you know, this is a good smattering of the stuff that we like to have fun with. Mm -hmm. And um, I think... Also think the first clip in here is from episode one and the last one's from episode 99. So a uh, pretty good span of our first hundred episodes. And I think you'll hear our audio quality get a lot better yeah. um, as you go. So that's kind of fun too. Um, yeah. So we hope you guys enjoy these clips, enjoy listening to them as much as we enjoyed listening to them and putting them together and curating them for you. And uh, we are looking forward to the next hundred episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're not going to have our traditional news and everything this week. So again, you know, if you want to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. Check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash ain't it scary. Uh, call and leave us a message on Google Voice at 203-666-5529. We have a message from a listener we're going to play next week about our Jack the Ripper series. Mm -hmm. uh, and subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, as we always say, we'll be forever grateful. Uh, that's right. And of course, uh, we just do want to give a shout out to our top tier patrons over there. You got Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. And uh, if that's the first time you've heard me read these names, you should listen to the end of the show. <laughs> you should. Um, so yeah, we hope you enjoy. Uh, this is going to be a real retrospective of so much of our last two years, and um, we really had fun picking these clips. As always, Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media, and we hope you enjoy the clip show. Our old friend Zach Bagans visited the Remington Arms plant mm -hmm. uh, back in 2015. Okay. And... Let me tell you, I dove into this episode and uh, I had a good old time with it. Definitely, uh, the boys caught some, well, some interesting evidence. Uh, and even when they first show up, this is I, I brought I brought a couple of clips for you, Caroline. Oh, that's very exciting. When they first show up, the Remington Arms factory immediately makes it clear that this they, this isn't going to be a normal overnight stay. <laughs> Are you serious? Look, it's on. Right now, it is on, and the light won't work. And it's a brand new battery. We brand just got out of it. I just heard footsteps. I, just, I know. I got hit, too. Look at, look at my arms. This can happen when you sense spirit energy. <sighs> you know, there, there are a few things as entertaining as classic ghost adventures. Before Zach gets the glasses and the... Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
That's 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 new age ghost adventures. This is the the real raw stuff. Raw, uncut ghost adventures. <laughs> Zach Bagans turning to the camera and explaining what goosebumps are. <laughs> this can happen to your body when you feel spiritual energy sometimes. <laughs> like everyone watching didn't read the books as a child. <laughs> like sees the guy pointing to his arm and he goes like, "What? What is that happening to his arm? What is this new evidence?" It's all bumpy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, their camera battery died. But anyway, that aside, uh, it's time to get into the lockdown because the ghost adventurers have some stuff to check up on, including those rumors about the explosion in 1942 possibly having been sabotage. Let's take a listen. Were you a Nazi spy? Did we get that right? Give us a noise. If you're a Nazi spy, give us a noise. Guys, let's go out here. Come on. What are they expecting? Like, <laughs> this ghost is gonna be like, see Kyle. Oh, Hitler! <laughs> Goose stepping ghosts. Um, yeah, they didn't find any any Nazi spy ghosts, unfortunately. Oh. Um, but they did capture some audio evidence, uh, and we are going to have to take a listen to this because it is oh so compelling. Sure. Who's right, over there? So you're making noises for us. Can you do something else? Oh, that was it. Yeah, that was it. Oh. Okay. So, are you compelled, or...? Wait, hold on. Let's try it again. <laughs> Who's right, over there? So you're making noises for us. Uh, what do you think? I can't say I'm compelled. It's pretty good, though, right? You didn't, you missed it on the screen. It does say unexplained banging, in case you were wondering what that was. <laughs> There's a lot of unexplained banging in the Melonhead story. Uh, yeah, it's true. That's <laughs> very true, unfortunately. Uh, but here, let, let, now how about this? Can they do something else? Let's find out. All right. Now, of course, Carrie, after hearing of those Portuguese workers going on strike and mm -hmm. that uh, that poor man being uh, hurt, you, you'll be glad to know that Zach and the crew did take these spirits to task for some of their uh, regrettable behaviors in life. Okay. One of them, 18-year-old Frank Monty, was bludgeoned to death by wooden batons of the factory guards. Are you going to bash my skull in? Because I'm on strike. We're your workers. All three of us are on strike. What are you going to do about it? Were you a spy who died? Were you a spy who died in the explosion because you created the explosion? There is <laughs> so are they... Are they guards or are they spies? Well, they could be either. Is guard the thing. spies? You want to cover all your bases. You can't see these ghosts, so you're going to want to... Hey, maybe they're guards, maybe they're spies. Okay. They could be Nazi spies. They, this is the, the, we are going back to that well again and again. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. 23 minutes and 31 seconds after we left the building, our static night vision camera in the hallway captured this strange light, and at the same time, this unexplained voice is heard. We That's a dog. That's a dog barking outside. Poe definitely makes noises like that. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a small dog barking in the street. No, 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 no. Here, listen to it again with enhanced audio. Oh, okay, it's a louder dog barking in the street. No, it's an unexplained voice. It says so right on the screen. It's saying help. What? <laughs> can you make? Can you make the sound of this? No, no, absolutely not. That just shows your inexperience in these matters. You know what it sounds like is the turtle that sounds like Owen Wilson. Oh. Wow. Yes. It does sound like that. All right, one more time. One more time. We debunked this. It's a dog. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> um, at one point, they also do catch a car backfiring. <laughs> it's a gun, Sean. Uh, Bridgeport police. They say Zach tells us in an ominous voice that Bridgeport police didn't report any shootings in that area of the city that night. 
But there were others. He doesn't say, but he specifies that area. (laughs) He says there were no shootings near the factory that night. Oh, boy. Adamski later wrote that the, quote, presence of this inhabitant of Venus was like the warm embrace of great love and understanding wisdom. So that's what he's feeling this whole time as he's flustered nice and like guy. turning around and like knocking an oil can off a shelf or whatever it is, <laughs> whatever earnest like activities he's getting into. <laughs> so his arm is actually like blasted back and paralyzed as he gets too close to this spaceship by, I don't know, the force field or energy field around it. Mm-hmm. And so he said Orthon darts in and grabs him and pulls him away from the ship and saves him just in the nick of time or his whole body would have been destroyed. Oh, don't know how he knows that. I don't think Orthon said that. That might be his imagination running, <laughs> running. <laughs> he away. just gave him the face that was like, "Ee." Yeah, exactly. And so Orthon uh, pulls him back, cuts his own thumb in the process, and uh, Damsky said they bleed uh, just like we do. Oh, red, that's, red that's blood. Very sweet. And Orthon just—he's cool though. He looks at his thumb and he kind of rubs it, and the blood stops. And then he reaches out that same hand to Adamski and touches his arm, and all the pain in his arm goes away. That's nice. Yeah. George said uh, as of like eight years later, it would still go numb uh, for a couple minutes a couple times a year. But other than that, it was okay. All right. So it's like, you know, it's an A minus on Orthon's uh, healing powers, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I would describe it. (laughs) So now I've already said I've given you the spoilers, Carrie. I've said the word Venus a couple of times. Sure. But George's pressing question is still uh, where this guy's from. He can't ask him in English. And he realizes that even if he thinks the word Venus, this guy doesn't know the word Venus. Yeah. I mean, he'd probably have his own name for the planet or whatever. So George points at his watch. He does a big circle around it. And he goes, number one with his finger. And he goes, Mercury. And then he does. I an- would not get planets from that. <laughs> then he does another circle around that, and he goes two with his fingers. Venus. And then he does another one, uh, three with his fingers. Earth. And he points down at his feet. Earth. Uh, and Orthon's like, "What the?" Well, I, apparently, because he had to, he had to repeat this process a few times. Yeah, a f- it doesn't make any sense. I, I imagine getting more and more. Um, you know, enthused and irritating as he went along. And, uh, well, finally, Orthon did get it. He finally did the same thing, but he stopped at orbit number two, and he pointed to himself and poked into that orbit, which means Venus. So I said Venus again. I said it about three times. So finally he said Venus just as plain as I did. And shortly after that he took off. Yeah, he was probably too. like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll take the watch. I'll take nice watch. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> he didn't take uh, he didn't take the watch. He did. Um, Adamski asked him if he could uh, take a photo of of this man who Adamski refers to as Orthon of Venus. And he somehow got that name out of their sign language psychic talking. Yeah, he says he knows Orthon's true Venusian name, but humans, uh, other humans aren't allowed to know it. So. Oh, that's just for George. So Orthon is what the rest of us get to call him. Okay. But Orthon um, said he couldn't, he didn't want to be photographed. Sorry. <laughs> it's kind of like how only people who work with Robert De Niro can call him Bob. And yes. the rest of us have to call him Robert. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very much that. And so, and Orthon, uh, you know, no pictures, peace and love. Sure. Um, just like Ringo Starr. <laughs> He's very much like Ringo. He started to hear the scratching and tapping of nails on the inside of Elena's coffin. Upon reopening the outer coffin, he discovered that the inner coffin holding her body was still sealed, and he couldn't find an explanation for the sounds he heard. He unscrewed a cap on the waterproof inner coffin and... Yes? Smelled it. Why? What? Well, <laughs> what are you doing, Carl? <laughs> he said the smell that emanated was exactly like the healthy and agreeable odor of a young woman's skin on a warm day. What? No. <laughs> he, that's what he said. That can't be true, Carl. Well, I wonder if this is an extreme version of just like not noticing the B.O. of a beloved partner, you know, just kind of letting your mind 
not get it. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But that happens because you smell my BO all of the time. Well, I don't know. Mm. He started to talk to Elena at this point and even installed a telephone in the crypt that he would call when the weather was too treacherous for him to visit. At some point, he placed his ear against the open coffin valve, which I guess he would just, he just pop on and off. I was going to say, did he just leave it open? Yeah. And he heard her voice speak back to him and sing, usually her favorite song, The Black Wedding. Her favorite song was... That's, oh. It was the one we talked about before, about the guy digging up his bride and killing right. himself with her corpse. Right. Eventually, he said that Elena told him, I want to go home with you. I want to be with you. And Von Kosel was like, that's cool, but it's not going to be easy to drag you out of here because there are high walls around the cemetery and you're a corpse. Well, happy wife, happy life. You got to <laughs> you gotta find a way to make this lady uh, give her what she wants. Well, it would just be a bit hard to hide from point A to point B. But apparently Elena's apparition was very helpful and showed him how it could be done. And soon after, he was ready to bring her home. Did he explain his his method? Well, he said he loaded the inner coffin, he pulled it out of the outer one, onto a little wagon. Oh, like, a, like a little red uh, radio flyer? Mm-hmm. And satisfied there were no witnesses because it was nighttime. I think it was a new moon, so it was completely dark. He pulled the wagon from the mausoleum. He pull, pulled it over to the cemetery fence where he struggled to haul the heavy coffin over the wall. Oh, poor Carl. At one point, the ground collapsed under him and a whole thing and and the whole thing fell on top of him. The coffin? Foul-smelling liquid dripped down oh, onto him, no. soaking his lapels and dripping down the back of his neck. Is that just corpse juice? Yeah. He summoned all the strength he had and heaved the coffin over the fence, making it back onto the wagon and pulling it until he reached the little halfway house he rented between his own home and the cemetery for this purpose. So it's basically like that bit in Young Frankenstein where they steal the corpse. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much note for note. Having no running water in this house, he removed his clothes and doused himself with whiskey to get rid of the corpse stink emanating from his own body. Because mm-hmm. it'd be it's preferable to just smell like naked whiskey man. Mm-hmm. He made it back unseen. And by the way, he's still living with Elena's parents at this point. So he came back home nude and... No, he's wearing the clothes, but he smells like corpse whiskey. Sure. Uh, So he had to sneak back into the house and try to bathe without anyone figuring out what was going on. (laughs) Apparently... Just a stealthy shower. Apparently he stunk so bad that even a bath didn't make the smell go away completely. Mm. But undaunted, he returned to the halfway house the next day with a large sedan and loaded her right in. It was time for her to be moved to her next resting place. The plane the Count was restoring behind the Marine Hospital. Of course, that's where you'd put her. Once he had did, alone time with her. Did it have two little cockpits like uh, like an in Indiana Jones? Could he just pop her in the back? She did spend time in the cockpit, yes. The gunner seat. Yeah. Once he had alone time with her, he assessed the terrible condition her body was in after decaying in the Florida heat for a year and a half. Yeah. My very soul was tortured with her awful condition. I resolved that I would help her out of this awful mess at once. She was my beloved bride. My promise to take care of her was a sacred one. Sean? He wasn't her bride, though. They they were both married to other people. I'm your beloved bride, right? Yes. Would you clean up my corpse after it was hanging around for a couple years? If you asked me nicely, absolutely. (laughs) So he cleaned her up as best he could and began to visit Fausto's food palace constantly to buy supplies. A Mrs. Weekly that worked at the palace told author Ben Harrison that she had been heartily amused by his purchases, wondering what he could be doing with the tons of soap and perfume he was buying. Little did she know. You wouldn't assume serial killer? Uh, first, I want to take you back to 
Chung Ling Su's kind of origin story. When he was born in Westchester County in 1861 as William Ellsworth Robinson. Oh. To two Scottish parents. Uh-oh. His father was James Campbell Robinson, a minstrel performer. Oh, dear. There so it go. runs in the family. Yeah, his father specialized in uh, dialect singing, which is impersonating a black person's oh, voice no. in a cartoonish way while wearing blackface. It was a different time. It wasn't okay then, but it was a different time. As well as hypnotism, ventriloquism, and magic tricks. And so he taught young Billy some of the tricks of the trade. So just, just dialing in on this, he was not half Cantonese. No, he certainly was not. Oh, boy. So he still wasn't a headliner, and in 1896, he saw another opportunity to make a name for himself. There was this very famous Chinese magician who had come to town uh, by the name of Ching Ling Fu. Oh, no. Yep. So he just goes, Chung Ling Su, Ching Ling Fu, whatever. Well, hold on. Ching Ling Fu came to town and... Was he actually Asian? Yes, he was from China. Okay, well, at least least there's that. And he was doing what was a pretty pretty, um, common gimmick at the time. Pretty common promotional gag. Uh, He was offering $1,000 to anyone who could duplicate his illusions. And Robinson had seen Ching Ling Fu's act, and he was pretty sure he'd clocked a few things. So he was pretty sure he could win this bet. But he was never able to get Ching Ling Fu to take his calls, because Ching Ling Fu had no intention of paying that money out to anyone. Mm -hmm. so So he took his name. Robinson was enraged, and... By 1900, he had resurfaced under the name Chung Ling Su. Oh, my God. By all accounts, doing mostly Ching Ling Fu's act. He (laughs) shaved the sides in the front of his hair and grew a long braid. And he would wear grease paint on his face to darken his complexion. Yikes. And and, uh, uh, squint his eyes back. Like, really rough. Oh, no. And like I said, he never spoke on stage to give the illusion that he was a not an English speaker. And his signature illusion, the big thing that he did add to Ching Ling Fu's act, was this elaborate bullet catch that he called Condemned to Death by the Boxers. Uh, and in his bullet catch, there were two guns and two bullets, both signed by separate members of the audience. Uh, they were fired from muskets hmm. at... Chung Ling Su. I get the two, the real name and the fake name confused <laughs> at Chung Ling Su. Okay. And um, how, would, how would he catch him? Like two different hands? I don't know if it was one hand or two. He would catch the two bullets. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you how he did this trick. Here's where we will. I'm sorry. Re- reveal some secrets. Yay. When a magician does a bullet catch, they're never catching a bullet. No. <laughs> Obviously. Um, the bullets... Generally not fired from the gun. A blank is usually fired, and at some point, the bullet has already been palmed by the magician to be revealed or wherever. stuck under his tongue or wherever it has to go. Exactly. One of the most sensational parts of this bullet trick was that these were breech-loading muskets, uh, old-timey. So the audience member would sign the bullet and put it right into the barrel. They would put it in. Okay. As soon as it was signed. Interesting. So it must have been much harder for him to... Get that. Palm it somehow. Right. And what would happen is the palm would happen later after the gunshot because these muskets secretly had two barrels, one under the first mm-hmm. with only one attached to a trigger. And that barrel was always loaded with blanks. But how would he get it from the musket? Well, after that, the assistant can get that thing out of the musket. He can get it to Chung Ling Su at some point. I've never seen this trick. I don't know. Um, how exactly he he then would get the bullet. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that the barrel that the bullet was loaded into was never supposed to be fired. The second barrel had a blank in it. That's the only one connected to a trigger. The problem is apparently Chung Ling Su wasn't all that fastidious about cleaning and taking care of his equipment. Uh Uh-oh. And when you have a double barrel like that, what you get is a lot of gunpowder that kind of builds up residue around... Not just the barrel being fired, but also the one right next to it. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, enough residue had built up that one night, when one of those assistants fired his musket, the blank ignited, ignited the second barrel, and fired that bullet. The re- real bullet. Real bullet. 
right into the very surprised Chung Ling Su. The audience was presumably very surprised to hear him say, in perfect English, Oh my god! Something's <laughs> happened! Lower the curtain! Uh-oh. So it's just shock after shock at that point. And that is how Chung Ling Su died. Okay. And the public was shocked by the revelation that this was a um, white man. And he died in front of you. But I love the idea. Like, he's, he's very carefully manicured this illusion and then just if almost a Frasier style, like, oh, good God. <laughs> yeah, the, the curtain goes down, the audience is quiet, and then all of a sudden, he was white? <laughs> Louis XIV was just the grossest. Like, he was just the grossest. <laughs> mm-hmm. He had such terrible personal hygiene that an abscess formed in, well, his anus. Okay. Which became a fistula. What is a... F- mm-hmm. In so many words, Sean. Uh, it's a starting point for serious infection that could spread throughout the body. It's really all we need to know. Okay. Became it's so. A, it's a pocket of pus, isn't it? It's like a fissure. It's not great. It became so painful for him that he couldn't ride his horse, walk, or even sit on the throne, either kinds, without <laughs> discomfort. If you want the scary part about this, a brave barber surgeon named Charles Francois Philly agreed to operate on the king. Mm-mm. Now, if this went wrong, it would probably result in his execution. So he only agreed to it if he could test out the surgery on human guinea pigs first. <laughs> He got 75 volunteers, which did, were mostly prisoners. Did they have fistulas? Uh, he just practiced on them. I don't think he was, like, that cautious about who had what. All right, step right up. Give me your butt. Some of them died, but the king's operation was a success. And so because of this, 1686 became the year of the fistula at court. I'm not making a joke. This is real. (laughs) Like officially. Because anything the king did became all the rage. Courtiers were desperate to have fistulas of their own. What? With many male noblemen draping swaths of bandages over their butts to emulate the king. And then prancing around like, I have a fistula. I have a fistula. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. People were pretending to have anal fissures because it was trendy. So take that, TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I mean, anytime someone says, like, this trend's stupid, is it as stupid as the year of the fistula? <laughs> no. Exactly. No, everyone can wear their clothes backwards like crisscross if <laughs> they want to. It's not as dumb as pretending you have a fistula. Ted Williams, Red Sox, great. Yes, Di- he is a baseball player, for those who don't know. Died July... Was. One of the best, one of the best of all time. Certainly, one of the best Red Sox of all time. Certainly, a name that was uh, whispered in rev- reverent tones around my home growing up. Ted died July fifth, two thousand two. He was eighty three years old, and apparently, his son John Henry and his youngest daughter Claudia immediately set about sending his body to a cryonics company called Alcor. Oh, that doesn't sound creepy at all, Alcor. Oh, you know that the Terminator is going to come from there. It sounds like, yeah, exactly. It's with Evil Corp was too, you know. Yeah. My point is, it sounds like something Mr. Robot would be fighting. Sure. It sounds like it could be a giant robot. This turned into a family struggle because Ted's oldest daughter, Bobby Jo Farrell, swore that her father's dying wishes were to be cremated. And sued her brother and sister to stop them from freezing dad. John Henry's lawyer produced a family pact, apparently, signed by himself, Ted, and Claudia, promising that the three of them would be frozen after their deaths. The lawyer or John Henry? The lawyer. <laughs> because it, <laughs> it would be funny if it's the lawyer, Ted Williams, and, and his daughter. Ted's daughter. Uh, no, it was John. <laughs> okay. Uh, the oldest sister ran out of money, couldn't sue anymore, and Ted was decapitated and his body and head were frozen and stored separately at Alcor's headquarters. Headquarters, haha. <laughs> Why are they separate? That's Why a, are they separate? I think they need, I think there's different processes and different temperatures for the uh, internal organs of your body versus the brain is a very difficult freezing process. 
How difficult? Well, former Alcor COO Larry Johnson, after getting out of the company, wrote a tell-all called Frozen, My Journey into the World of Cryonics, Decapitation, and Death. And Disney said, that sounds like a great title. Let's cut off the, the fat and just call it Frozen. And then let's cut off the head. And just call it Disney. He wrote in the book that uh, Ted Williams' treatment at the facility was a big part of the reason he left the company. That it made him sick to his stomach to see Ted to see Red Sox great Ted Williams' in head two pieces? cut off and stored separately. He wrote that the brain, Ted Williams' brain cracked in 10 separate places during the freezing process. Oh, no. Now, in fairness, the current director of the company, when asked about this by ABC News, said, oh, on average, we get about 10 or 12 cracks. Uh, before then, without this technology, it was thousands. The brain isn't Play-Doh. It's just not going to mush back together. Oh, no, it's about 10 or 12 cracks. No problem. Oh, no. He seems casual about it. Um... We're really getting into rumor here because we only have Johnson's book to go on. But I have to tell you that he wrote that at one point he saw that Ted Williams' head had been propped up with an empty tuna can during transport on a cart from one room to another. I don't know why you would have to move it. T- was it washed, the tuna can? Uh, I have, it, it, that was not mentioned, but I do know it apparently stuck to Ted's frozen head... When they picked up the head, and then an employee tried to remove the tuna can, according, allegedly. This is, oh, okay. By whacking the head with a wrench. Why not whack the tuna can? Johnson. Why with the, why? Johnson said he missed the tuna can, hit the head square in the middle, and there were bits of frozen heads spraying everywhere. I'm speechless. I've told a few stories uh, over this time that we've had together on this podcast about my growing up and what made me the strange and spooky woman I am today. (laughs) Um, And I would say a lot of the fault lies with you, Dad. Sorry to say. Uh, From telling me Walt Disney was frozen cryogenically while a child watching Disney movies to... Standing outside of the window in the dark and going, until I screamed, I grew up basically on the edge of my seat with fear constantly. Yeah, uh, no Disney World for you. (laughs) We we went to places like Gettysburg, and I'm sure they left an indelible mark on your psyche. Um, But, you know, it it was all in good fun. And uh, what better place to learn about American history than... The scene of one of the epic battles, the turning points of the Civil War. Can I take us off topic, way off topic for just a moment? While we're on this subject, can we tell the story of the uh, ghost from the Long Island house? Yes. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Long Island house that my family bought as a summer cottage uh, was uh, originally built in uh, 1937. And uh, when we got there, there was a huge um, freezer in the basement that was um, disconnected by then. And uh, I convinced young Caroline that there was actually the body of the, uh, the original owner, Mr. Dillingham, uh, which was kept in the freezer. Oh, and- no, you said he was buried because it was an un- it's an unfinished basement, which was already kind of creepy and weird to me growing up in New England, where a lot of people have their finished basements or stone basements. But this basement has like a like a dirt area. Oh, yeah, he was moved. He's, he's buried there and he murdered his wife, you told me, yes. as a child. Yes, he And did. put her in the deep freeze. Well, yeah. And Much like a Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> and, and then... and then Guys, he- I was in... I was like in preschool when I first heard this. <laughs> well, yeah, but... <laughs> what do you mean, well, yeah? He originally was in the deep freeze with her. Uh-huh. But then when the deep freeze, you know, when we got rid of it, we had to move him, so he was moved to the crawl space. Uh, as you do. So he, this was a family decision it, to move yeah. him to the crawl space. He, what happened yes. to Mrs. Dillingham, who he murdered? Um, 
No comment. No comment. Wow. Yeah, so I grew up with these kinds of fucked up stories <laughs> since I was a child. And people ask, Carrie, why are you so morbid? And I say, because Dillingham murdered his wife and stuck her in the deep freeze. Well, when we got rid of the deep freeze, I, I think we also got rid of a wood chipper. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that plays into it, but yeah. The conspiracy deepens. Sort of a Fargo situation with Dillingham there, I see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am ready. ready. Audience, sit back, (laughs) get yourself a refreshing uh, (laughs) beverage and a popcorn, and enjoy this presentation of Dark Dungeons. Okay, wizard, cast your spell. Okay, dungeon master, my spell of light blinds the monster. The thief, Blackleaf, did not find the poison trap, and I declare her dead. No! Not Blackleaf! No! No! I'm going to die! Don't make me quit the game, please! Don't! Somebody, save me! You can't do this! Marcy, get out of here. You're dead. You don't exist anymore. Debbie, your cleric has been raised to the eighth level. I think it's time you learn how to really cast spells. You mean you're going to teach me how to have the real power? Yes, you have the personality for it. Now... The intense occult training through D&D prepared Debbie to accept the invitation to enter a witch's coven. Uh, I imagine that is played with like some rocky music <laughs> and somebody drinks wine out of like a blood red goblet. Yes, of course. Whole montage situation. <clears throat> I've brought Elfstar <laughs> to become a priestess and a witch. Welcome, Elfstar. Now you will become a priestess of the craft. And of the Temple of Diana. Ms. Frost, this is fantastic. This makes the game real. It's not a fantasy anymore. I know you were ready by the way you played the game, but this is just the beginning. There is so much more. Last night, I cast my first spell. This is real power. Which spell did you cast, Debbie? I used the mind bondage spell on my father. He was trying to stop me from playing D&D. And what was the result? He just bought me $200 worth of new D&D figures and manuals. It was great. Later that week... Hey, Debbie, Marcy's on the phone. She wants to talk to you. She's really upset. I can't. I'm fighting the zombie. Tell her I'll see her tonight. Later that night. Hi, Mrs. Anderson. Marcy wanted to see me tonight. I'm glad you're here, Debbie. Marcy has shut herself in her room and won't come out. She hasn't been herself for weeks. I've been very worried. Ever since her character in the game got killed, it's as though part of her died. Maybe you can talk some sense into her. At this point, we have a panel of just Debbie opening a bedroom door and seeing what we can presume are her friend Marcy's shoes dangling from somewhere above the panel. Oh my god. No! No, Marcy! You didn't have to do that! And now a close-up on a note. It's my fault Blackleaf died. I can't face life alone! Marcy. (laughs) Ms. Frost, I can't get Marcy out of my mind. How could she do something like this? If I'd left the game, she'd be alive today. Get your priorities straight, Debbie. (laughs) Your spiritual growth through the game is more important than some lousy loser's life. It would have happened sooner or later. Her spirit was too weak. Burn. But the law of our faith is that we can do anything we want as long as we harm no one. But we have harmed Marcy. What have I gotten myself into? Don't be stupid, Debbie. I think you'd better let... Elfstar, take care of things. You're getting out of control. I don't want to be Elfstar anymore. I want to be Debbie. Hey, Debbie, what's wrong? Can I help? (laughs) I thought I had all the answers, Mike, but now everything is falling apart. Debbie, I told you, Jesus is the only answer. (laughs) I've been praying and fasting for you. Why would you do that for (laughs) me? Because I know what you're involved in. It's a spiritual warfare that you can't win without the Lord Jesus. What can I do? Come with me to a meeting this afternoon. 
the speaker came out of witchcraft and he knows what you're up against. It's really great that the speaker has the backstory of being a former witch. Yeah. Yes, but but in a second we'll see. I think he's all he must be an accredited exorcist as well. Oh, I'm a, yeah, I'm about to lay it on here, I guess. <clears throat> if you want the Lord Jesus as your savior, come forward now. James Earl Jones? Oh, God, I need help. My life's a mess. Help me. In the name of Jesus, I order you spirits of the occult to leave, Debbie. Lord Jesus, I repent. I trust that you died for me. Please be my savior. You guide me through life. I want you to be in charge of everything. Not that stupid D&D manual. Debbie burned all of her occult material that night. Thank you, Lord, for setting me free. And scene. There is a lot to unpack there, but the fact that the spell worked and let her get her parents to buy two hundred dollars worth of D and D stuff is my favorite. I want that spell. It's a weird. That that one's a weird choice because you there might be you know that that's gonna pull a couple of kids in. I was gonna say it sounds like on one side of this you would possibly learn magic without her friend dying, like other than her friend killing herself. (laughs) The only bad thing that happened... There's nothing else bad that happens. It really sounds Ms. like... Miss Frost seems like a predator, but... Oh, oh she's grooming <laughs> Debbie. There's no question about that. It sounds like if you're good at D&D, it's just all bueno. Yeah, yes. that's true. Yeah, don't lose D&D. Yeah, that's, it's just a high-risk game. Okay. N- now... <laughs> you know, now you're really selling me. This is kind of like Formula One. Mm-hmm. All the glory or, you know, get your face burned off like that guy in that movie. Rush. It was a good movie. I haven't seen it, but it's on my list. Uh, Sorry, listener. It's really good. (laughs) It's like surprising. We'll talk about it after the podcast. It it surprised me how good it was. Anyway, that was Dark Dungeons in 1984. And just for perspective, dear listener, I recently received a chick tract in the mail. Oh, yeah. Jack Chick is dead. Um, (laughs) Long live Jack Chick. God damn his soul. Uh, But... but, (laughs) But Chick Publishing is well alive and well, and they're still uh, still just putting those little uh, little uh, leaflets of hate out uh, throughout the world. Lennon later explained this away by saying that they were doing live theater on BBC Radio at the time, and he decided to just cut in those lines as they were recording. But if you reverse the same section, you get this. What does that sound like to you? Well, I know from the screen of the YouTube video well, that you I, sent that's me that's why I don't like sending these to you ahead of time. Supposed to say Paul is dead. Ha ha. Paul is dead. Ha ha. Pretty ghoulish, huh? Well, let's let's let the listener have have their own uh, opinion. <laughs> It also just sounds weird, thanks to the inherent creepiness of backmasking. Well, yeah, and that section forwards just sounds like, everybody loompa, everybody loompa. (laughs) Which is weird, too. Uh, It's already weird. You may remember the idea of backmasking from our Satanic Panic episodes. It's the belief that musical artists bury hidden messages backwards within their music, only accessible when the record is played backwards. This is... This is supposed to fit in with Crowley's satanic beliefs, because he was um, big on being backwards, and also act as a subconscious message to the, li- to the listener. Right. Like um, people hear, the most notable example might be the Stairway to Heaven. Mm-hmm. Like, my sweet Satan, my sweet Satan. Yeah, it sounded like something from Twin Peaks. Next, in the fade-out of the song Strawberry Fields Forever, we have this little clip. We need to hear that again, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I buried Paul. I buried Paul. But again, I, I said this to you earlier as I was pulling this clip. Uh, I, 
We just watched eight hours of John Lennon in the studio being uh, very silly, and I think it's more likely that he's just saying, I'm very bowls. Well, in David Chef's Playboy interviews with Lennon and Yoko Ono, he asked, what about that line in I Am the Walrus, I Buried Paul? Lennon responded, I said cranberry sauce. Cranberry sauce is all I said. Cranberry sauce. Why was he talking about cranberry sauce then? Who knows? Again, we just watched eight hours of him uh, reading their set lists. <laughs> yeah, at least that makes sense. Where did cranberry sauce come from? Reversing the music at the beginning of Blue Jay Way is also supposed to reveal a clue. That one's pretty weak. What do you hear? What do you hear? That's what I hear. I don't hear words. It's Let me do it again. Okay. Okay. That time I heard Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood. No Hollywood. Or did you hear Paul is bloody? Paul is bloody. <laughs> Paul is very bloody. <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't that. Hold on. Paul is bloody. You're cheating. <laughs> I'm trying to show you where it, you know, corresponds. It's not there. It's not there. <sighs> the first, the writers of the book uh, sometimes give people a uh, an alias if they like, if they're uncomfortable being named. So this was a retired New York cop named Tony Valor. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it says that's terrific i can only imagine tony came up with his own uh alias and porn name it <laughs> sounds like tony vala <laughs> it means i have vala <laughs> uh he was a retired cop in his 40s so early retiree but you get a good pension as a cop and he had just moved to kent with his I'm wife i'm not judging his choices don't ju- don't judge him carrie i'm sure they had enough set aside <laughs> he moved to kent with his wife and two kids and just after midnight on New Year's Eve, 1982, Tony Valor cracked open a bottle of bubbly, as you do to celebrate. Um, and then he wandered outside the house, and he, <laughs> and he decided, I guess on his own, uh, that he was going to crack another bottle of champagne on the side of the house to christen it. Yeah, I don't think his wife helped him make that choice. I can tell you for sure that she didn't. Uh, but, you know, like you do with a boat. He was like, honey, it's the new house. Christen it. Um, yeah, he christens the new house. He, and so he... I see the logic. He, he, he's so Italian, I can tell. Tony Valor. <laughs> he's the most Italian guy. Tony Valor. We gotta make it nice. Wait, isn't Tony Valor... <laughs> make it nice. Isn't Tony Valor one of your dad's friends from Pelham? Probably. Um, we all know Tony Valor. <laughs> so... Um, when he shows his wife, look, I, I christened the house. Um, she was pissed at him. <laughs> she was <laughs> she was mad. She was mad about the broken glass, concerned the kids were going to walk out and hurt their feet. Uh, and so she told Tony, go go get a, a dustpan and clean that up right now. And Tony was sweeping glass up in his driveway when he looked up and saw about 15, he said, very bright red, green, and white lights uh, in the this sky. colored. Yeah, it is Christmas colors, and this was right after Christmas. Um, that wasn't Tony's thought because it was so high in the sky, so he thought maybe a large jet in trouble, um, but it was moving too slowly to be any kind of a plane that Tony had ever seen. So he yelled for his wife to grab the movie camera as the lights passed right over the house. Uh, direct quote from Tony here. He said, It seemed to be connected to some kind of structure. The thing was a boomerang, a V-shape. I could hear a faint, deep hum. Oh! <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> I don't think he added the O at the end. He definitely added. He definitely said O. He seems like a dice man. Classic Tony Valor. Uh, Typical Tony Valor. Our killer's not uh, murdering prostitutes here, but he did take on a Jack the Ripper affectation that suggests that he was at least very familiar with that crime. Because a letter was delivered to the New Orleans Times-Picayune on March 13th, 1919. A classic Dear Boss? Uh, a Yes, a Dear Boss letter, if you will. 
the Times Picayune might not have been sure of what to do with such a letter because they published it several days later. It reads as follows. Hell, March 13th, 1919. And uh, you'll recall, of course, Gary, that famously one of those Ripper letters mm-hmm. is says from hell at the top. Big fan. Um, yeah, so this guy's a big fan. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orlinians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the X-Man. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I'm sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orlinians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. It's big talk from someone who leaves half of the victims alive. Only at the beginning, Carrie. He's getting better. (laughs) I don't think that's better, but okay. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time... Fuck off. On next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing... At the time I have just mentioned. A full band? If everyone has a jazz band going, well then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific (laughs) Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus. (laughs) Fuck off. And it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. This guy sucks. So, a lengthy letter. He seems to like the look of his own prose, if Mm. not the sound of his own voice. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing that a couple of writers I read uh, pointed out is that this appears to be a letter from obviously a literate person, obviously a person who was up on... Tartarus. And a person who was up on, you know, the events of the past few decades, even abroad. He had read about Jack the Ripper. It's basically a Jack the Ripper fanfic. It is a Jack the Ripper (laughs) fanfic. Um, He's really, he's putting on more airs than Jack, though. Jack had some maybe, like, on-purpose misspellings and stuff. This guy wants to appear very erudite, and he references current events and uh, the Bible and... Jazz. Jazz, of course. Uh, that, that's an interesting... Yeah, we'll talk touch on that in a moment. But some writers have pointed out that, like, it's a pretty amateurish thing to end a letter with, well, I've got to go now. <laughs> yeah. Because you you're writing a letter you don't have to go now you could have written it in two sittings you don't have to excuse yourself you're not actually leaving the person can read it at their leisure it makes no sense and it's something that uh, children do when they're writing a letter mm-hmm. i'm not saying this was a child but i'm it's saying it's someone who didn't have like finishing formal education of the time well either that or he's like i've been so dramatic up to here i don't even know how to like be the most dramatic like a, a final flourish after so he's he, like well i've got to go back to hell like after, what's more dramatic than that after those who don't jazz it out will get the axe he's jazz like jazz it out well as i'm cold 
Well, yeah, then I'm going to go back to the fires of hell. Like, you know, he's trying to end with a a big bang. Um, The jazz thing is interesting. It's part of what has seared this into the public consciousness because people were scared of the Axeman. Mm -hmm. And because of this letter's publishing, people did, on that night, uh, listen to jazz. They did jazz it out, and jazz was heard loudly in the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Uh, And never stopped. In fact... A few short months later, jazz musician Joseph John Davila released a piece of sheet music called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, parenthesis, Don't Scare Me, Papa. (laughs) Don't scare me, Papa. In uh, in that same year, 1919. It's a piece that he claims he wrote while waiting out the Axeman's terrible vigil on that jazz-filled night. Do we have a recording of of any version of this? Uh, We do, and let's take a listen right now. So kind of a bop. It's very perky. It's uh, definitely the most success that Davila ever saw in his career. Uh, and in fact, some true crime writers and some historians, Davis included, uh, suggest that uh, Davila may also have written the Axeman letter to the Times-Picayune because it would have drummed up interest for his song later that year. Almost immediately after they discovered the flies, they still don't know what to do about that. Uh, George, like, had to scrape them off more or less individually and, like, dump them out the window. Um, And then a guy knocked on the door, about 40 years old, uh, balding. They described him as uh, red-nosed with the uh, cold outside, although the children had just been playing outside a few hours before. The man had coarse features and a six-pack of beer in his hands. He was wearing W.C. Fields. Yes, it's W.C. Fields with his big red nose. He's wearing a wool coat, corduroy pants and construction boots. And uh, the Lutzes have already been in the house for almost a week. But the guy's standing there in their doorway saying, everybody wants to come over to welcome you to the neighborhood. You don't mind, do you? And George said, oh, no, we don't mind. Uh, we don't have furniture yet, guys. But if they don't mind, we just sitting, have our murder bed. If they don't mind sitting on cardboard boxes, you bring them all, George said. And, and as he did, he tried to uh, accept the six pack from the man. But the man kind of firmly held on to it. <laughs> no. Oh, no. These are mine. <laughs> and said to George, uh, I brought it. I'll take it with me. <laughs> then he turned around and left. And they nev- This isn't haunted. It's just stupid. They never saw him again. That man, Carrie, they say that man was not a neighbor and he, he never appeared. <laughs> What's so funny? It's just so funny. <laughs> <laughs> this is a scary stuff, Carrie. <laughs> I think of everything they've experienced. This like socially awkward drunk is not the worst. Carrie, they never saw him again. They only lived there for another week. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Uh, well what's not funny caroline poverty (laughs) (laughs) well that's true as they jumped into an abandoned middle school a fellow student teleported into ankle deep water in a nearby fountain and basiago says and i'm not sure what this means so if you can guide me he says the specific gravity of the water caused the boy's feet to arrive a split second before the rest of his body. He was splinched. Le- yes, just like in Harry Potter. Yes, if you... If, if you, you uh, operate poorly, you lose little parts of your body. Mm-hmm. And that is just what happened, apparently, to this poor young agent. This is from a, uh, an interview he gave on YouTube, Mr. Basiago. And so he slid off his ankles and oh. tumbled out of the fountain, Ugh. having been detached from his feet. <laughs> and when I reached his location, I had, I had popped into view what via the teleporter that I jumped through, and he clearly accessed that location from some other teleporter around the eastern United States. Clearly. He was writhing on the ground, screaming, my feet, my feet, I'm only nine years old. What am I going to do without any feet? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I love that the boy has the presence of mind to go, my feet, my feet, I'm nine years old. What am I going to do without any feet? He's thinking of his whole life without, just on these stumps. (laughs) 
the the cut he, he was detached from his feet is disgusting it, and what does he say he slid off he slid off his ankles he slid, <laughs> <laughs> slid off his jesus ankles jesus christ that's some cronenberg shit my feet my feet i'm only nine years old yeah it's sad <laughs> have you ever wondered about things that go bump in the night or objects in the sky or other things you just couldn't explain then join me, Jim Mauer, on my podcast, The Mauer Report. Each week, you'll find engaging conversations with guests who are authors, historians, and scholars who lend their expertise as we discuss current events and venture into the fringe and paranormal. The Mauer Report hits controversies head-on, yet remains conversational, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform.